Acts chapter 10. God is working. God is moving. All throughout the book of Acts, you see God and his gospel and the good news just just going forth into the nations. Uh, you see God uh, beginning there, as he said he would, in Jerusalem and spreading out to Judea. And then in Acts chapter 8, he went into Samaria. And as we're moving through this book, you'll see how he will literally move to the ends of the earth. The gospel, the good news, will reach the ends of the earth because the Spirit of God is empowering his people to be on mission. And tonight, as you look at Acts chapter 10, you see this chapter is so significant to the overall accomplishment of that goal as God will move his work to the corners of the earth itself. And notice what he says as Dr. Luke writes to give us an account of this event. He says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa, and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, Dr. Luke basically gives us this story about this man named Cornelius. He lives in this town called Caesarea. Caesarea being a significant city in the life of Israel. Some of you may have been to Israel before. If you haven't, we're probably going to give you an opportunity next year. So, right, Dale? Aren't we working on it? Who would be interested in going tonight, by the way? That's all? I said I'm going. I can understand you not want to go with Dale, but I'm... If you go over there... It is really tremendous. I've been a couple of times now, and it's really great to see how the Scripture comes alive. And as I was reading through this passage and thinking about Caesarea, I recognized that Caesarea in the New Testament age, in this moment, it was basically the political capital of Israel. I mean, you've got Jerusalem, which is very significant for religious reason, but Caesarea had been built basically to accommodate the Romans and to make sure that if there were any type of Jewish, Jewish insurrections, the Romans could bring in the, the reinforcements, they could bring in all the necessary resources to put down that insurrection. And it was right there on the sea. It's a beautiful place. And Caesarea, being a Roman Gentile type of city, much more so than Jerusalem, it says that there is this man named Cornelius, a very common name of the day, and that he is a centurion. A centurion would basically oversee about 100 soldiers. And he would be, according to some descriptions, just an average type of guy. He was a steady leader, most likely. He was just an average guy. One commentator would say that centurions, by their very nature, are not adventurous type of people. 
In other words, they're not necessarily trying to move up in the military ranks. They're just content where they are, and they're steady, and you can depend upon them most of the time. So here you have Cornelius, this centurion living in this Roman, Romanesque type of city there in Israel. He is taking care of his duties and his job. And it says in the midst of that, he is also worshiping the God of the Jews. Notice it says that he is a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. Now, when I was at Blue Mountain College, we often talked about these people in the New Testament and during this age that could readily be identified as God-fearers, God-fearers. What it meant by that term, what we meant by it, was these were individuals who were worshiping the God of the Jews. They were worshiping Yahweh God. But they had not totally conferred, converted to Judaism. They had not submitted themselves to all the rituals. They had not submitted themselves to all the ceremonies that would be necessary for true conversion. But they worshiped and they were devout people. In this case, it says that he practiced giving alms and also praying to God. And if you were to look at the Jewish uh, emphasis, the only thing that it doesn't mention here is the practice of fasting. Basically, almsgiving and praying were central to the Jewish faith. And it says that this guy, this centurion, is praying to God. At about the ninth hour, so roughly 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. So get this. Average guy, centurion, living in this Roman-like city there in Israel, who's worshipped God, who's done some of the basic practices necessary to be a part of the Jewish faith, but not buying totally into it. Here he is praying, and an angel appears and calls him by name. I think that's tremendous. That God would take such divine initiative and action to come to this average guy, Gentile guy, and that he would call him by name. It, it, it's as though God knew who he was. Because God did know who he was. And God knew where he was in his spiritual journey. And God intervenes here. Does whatever is necessary to intervene in this Cornelius' life to ultimately bring salvation. God answers. You know, a few years ago, I believe it was one of our leaders at the Southern Baptist Convention, if you call them leaders, they were there at the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and preaching. And I think one made a statement one time that God does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. He only hears the prayers of true believers. Now, I understand the basic premise with which he stated that I understand that there is a unique relationship between believer and God you would agree with that but when I come back to this I am reminded that God is not restricted only to hear the prayers 
of believers. But yet he is taking note of other individuals' lives. And he is working in his own way. And many of us, when we were unbelievers, we know and now we can look back and see how God was working then to bring us to the point where we are now. It could have been through a preacher, a sermon, could have been through a Sunday school teacher, could have been through our moms and dads, it could have been, but God was working. And here, God literally intervenes in Cornelius' life. The angel comes, he says, basically, we have noticed your heart and where you are. What we want you to do now is send men down to Joppa, and we want you to find this man named Simon Peter and bring him up to talk to him. So, they travel roughly 30 miles to Joppa to find Peter. Eight verses covered in about, what, four minutes. Good job, huh? Maybe eight minutes. Look at verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, around noon. He goes up to the rooftop to pray. Then he became very hungry. He's a man after my own heart. And wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheep bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. Let me stop here and just say something. Wonderful things happen when we stop and pray. Don't forget that. That may be one of the weakest areas of my life. Perhaps one of the weakest areas of the contemporary church is that we do not spend enough time before God praying, talking to Him. And I just would challenge us tonight as we go through this passage and notice how God speaks and, and, and moves during the prayer life of Cornelius and through Peter that it is very, I think, significant for us to stop and to pray. I think it was Martin Luther that was once asked something to the effect, how can you afford to pray that much? To which he answered, how could I afford not to pray? That much. And for us who are caught up in the busyness of the days, and all of us are, right? You don't believe me after this service, catch somebody around and say, Hey, how's your week been? And most likely you're going to hear a litany of the events and the activities that they've taken part in. No one has cornered the market on busyness. All of us have shared that. But somewhere in the midst of that, we need to stop and pray. It says that he prayed. And as he prayed, there at noon, he, he had not eaten. He was hungry, it says, uh, for, the, for, the, for the basic uh, custom of the day. The Jews would eat a, a late morning uh, meal, usually a, then a late afternoon meal. So here, perhaps he had skipped that morning breakfast. Uh, and it says that he began to 
to see heaven opened and an object like a great sheep bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air, and a voice came to him. The Philip Robertson quote of the scripture, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. You don't believe me if you ever hear Phil speak in person, he loves that verse. It's his motto for life. Rise, kill, and eat. For all of us who are hunters, we like it too, right? <laughs> amen. This biblical sanction for hunting here. Didn't get too many amen, so I better move on. But it says, um, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Peter said, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Notice Peter's reaction. Peter says, God, I can't do this. You know who I am. You know my background. You know I've always been committed to Jewish customs and ritual. I have never in my life eaten anything that is common or unclean. Can't do it. Cannot do it. And a voice spoke to him again the second time saying, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. What does he say? Eat up. You can eat it. It's fine because what I have cleansed, you must not call unclean. You can eat. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. So basically what God says as he speaks to Peter is that all these things are clean. Now, certainly we could talk about dietary law tonight. We could talk about food. And most of us in this place do agree that we don't have to follow the Jewish custom and the Jewish dietary laws. Everybody should get charismatic with me on that one. Very thankful. We don't have to do that. Now, I will tell you there is a movement underway, even in some of our churches, to return us to those dietary laws. One time a member of the committee that brought me to a church actually began to educate me on how we should return to the Old Testament dietary laws and how she began to do that with her family and how they got into it. And before you knew it, they had kind of stopped coming to uh, the church that was there. They had begun going to... Uh, synagogue and worshiping on the Sabbath, they called it. I mean, just really got into it all. I say to you, be careful. Go back to Galatians. You would think it wouldn't even happen today in our world, but today the way uh, so many people are getting so intrigued by certain things in their lives and the communication that they see on the Internet and on the television and being drawn into things, let me just say to you, be careful. Read the book of Galatians. Read that little letter where Paul is absolutely horrified that those new believers would slip back into the old ritual and customs that they had been delivered from. Be careful. With that being said, and with it truly stated and recorded tonight by Andy so that everybody will hear that listens to this sermon, to know that there are no dietary laws and we can eat whatever. Lemon ice box pie with 
saying that, understand this passage is not really about food. I, I mean... I know what the vision is about, but it's really not about food because you can't disconnect it from the previous verses and the verses that follow. That's one of the reasons I can't just stop here. I've got to continue reading because notice the context. Verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. I love this timing. Okay? Notice how God is in charge. Notice his sovereignty and how it's demonstrated here. He speaks to Cornelius up in Caesarea. This group of individuals sent from Cornelius, three or so, sent down to Joppa. In the midst of their coming to Joppa, God speaks to Peter to get him ready for what's going to happen for these visitors who are going to come. And just in that moment when he's trying to think about what this vision meant, guess what happened? There are men standing at the door. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. Now that should have said something, that he's, they're able to ask for him by name. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. God's timing. God working all these things together to accomplish his mission. Now again, many of us have seen God's timing evident in our lives as well. Just at the right moment. Just at the right time. Just in the right place. God has put the right people. He's put the right purpose. And here Peter knows that God has initiated this, the Spirit has spoken to him, and now he is ready to meet Cornelius. So verse 24, and the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. He had gone out and he had gathered an audience. The preacher's coming, God's going to speak, let's get the folks over. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. Peter just says, Hey, let's not get carried away here, okay? I know that God has intervened and He's spoken to you, and I know I'm supposed to come, but put this in perspective I'm not God, I'm just a man. 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Ah. Okay. The vision wasn't about food. The vision was about people. The vision was about God's work among the nations. And Peter has that clearly defined for him in his life. And he speaks now to others. He said, therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. <laughs> I like this, because he basically says, uh, God said you'd have a sermon, and we're proud you're here. Would you preach for us now? You know, when, I mean, you're the preacher. Uh, I know this is what happened, but I really can't tell you what you're supposed to tell us, but we're waiting because we know you got a message. I, I kind of like the way that all works out, right? I love to be able to go somewhere, and they're like, hey, by the way, you, you know you're going to speak today. Oh, yeah, you're gonna, you, you need to just share something. Maybe not 48 verses at one time, but you can share something. Here's Peter. He's like, I know God's working. I know God's called you. You've got the sermon, so would you preach? So you know what a preacher's going to do? He's going to open his mouth. Verse 34, it says, then Peter opened his mouth. And said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee. After the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things, which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to those who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. Just a very simple, clear gospel declaration. He says, this Jesus we're bearing witness to, he is open to all who will come, who will confess, who will commit, all who will come and believe, have faith in him. He's open that all may have the remission of sins. It's remarkable, remarkable that Peter 
He's preaching such a message to the Gentiles. You know, beforehand, it was kind of like, all right, we've got to separate ourselves. We've got the Jewish audience here. We have the Gentile audience here. We've got to make sure that we maintain our purity and, and all of the rules and laws of Judaism. We've got to be careful about all those things. But now, through the intervention of God in Peter's life, he recognizes the only thing that matters is the faith that individuals enter into as they come to know Christ. That's what matters. And it's open to the nations. Now, God had to work on Peter. Remember Peter, the spokesman on the day of Pentecost, the one who was on fire for God? God still had to work on him to open his eyes to the nations. And you know God has to do that on us sometimes, doesn't he? God has to work on us. I mean, it's so easy. It's so easy to retreat to our comfort zones. I mean, it's so easy just basically to live a good life right where we are and testify to those who are around us. It's just so easy to get caught up in it. I mean, Rustin. Rustin. I've said, I wasn't born here, but thank God I got here as soon as I could. I love it. Do you know how much better it is than Baton Rouge? Bogalusa? Other, I mean, it's all, it is great. And, and one of the things that Leslie and I love so much about it, our family, is because you, you have certain values that are still represented here, even though a culture that is hostile to the gospel is growing in so many other areas. And certainly there are challenges among us. I'm not trying to mitigate those, but I'm thankful that we still have some core values that you can find within our community and with our churches. I am thankful that we have a lot of strong churches in this community. I am thankful but we must be careful that we don't get so caught up in where we are that we forget the nations. Peter, I mean, the great evangelist of Pentecost. God has to work on his heart because you know what? He was steeped in the tradition of Judaism. He had been there all of his life. It wasn't natural for him to simply dismiss all of the cultural regulations and ritual. It wasn't natural. But God did what was necessary so that he would take the message to the nations. And God still has to work on us. If he had to work on Peter, he has to work on us. We're in good company, though. We're in pretty good company. But God has to work on us to open our eyes to the tremendous need of the nations. Of the lostness that is here in our own country. But the lostness that exists around the world. You look and say, well, you know, Brother Reggie, we, we, can't, we can't do everything. Shouldn't we try? Shouldn't we try to do whatever we can? 
as we are empowered by the Spirit of God to make a difference. And I know we are. I know God is raising up teams now to go. I know we are supporting financially, but I say to you, we should never be content. We should always be striving because the because the true message is this. Anybody and everybody, as long as they come by faith in Christ, they can know salvation. It does not matter their speech. It does not matter the color of their skin. It does not matter. What matters is their faith in Christ. Verse 44 says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter. Approximately about six had come with him. You'll find out later on in chapter 11. They had come with him and they were astonished. Never seen a Gentile saved before. Or at least a Gentile, a Holy Spirit. I mean, I know that Ethiopian eunuch thing. We heard about that. But we're actually here and the, the Holy Spirit came upon a Gentile. Something like this for us. A Muslim can be saved? I mean, I've never seen a Muslim. Are you sure? But that was the same idea that those early Jews had because it was so foreign to them. The Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also, the gift of the Spirit. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. It says that it was manifest through the speaking of tongues. Before some of you... All of a sudden, try to construct your theology of speaking in tongues. Let me remind you that these passages and acts are descriptive, not prescriptive. What does that mean? It describes the events. It doesn't say this is what the normative experience of your life is. Those who try to build their doctrine of tongues from the book of Acts, I say to you, notice over and over how tongues come at different times in the believer's experience. You can't build one normative case in the book of Acts. You can't do that. Why? Because God was not trying to prescribe to us exactly how these things were happening. He was trying to describe how these things were happening. He was saying, this is how in this transition period. Remember, this is a transition period. I mean, for the Jews, I mean, the gospel going to the Gentiles, this is as transitional as you come. What they know is God works in his own way is to say that now the Spirit, evidence of salvation, has come into the life of the Gentiles. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit had come upon what set of individuals? The Jewish people, believers. Remember that? Shake your head like this. We're almost finished. Jewish believers. Acts chapter 8. The Holy Spirit had come upon what group of individuals? The Samaritans. Remember the Samaritans? What some people would call half-Jews. Half-Jews. 
And now, Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles. Gentiles, fully non-Jewish individuals. So can you see how the transition is taking place in the book of Acts? And how the Holy Spirit has come to the Jews, the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles. And that transition, in some ways, now is complete. Because the nations themselves are gathered. The Gentiles have been grafted into the family of God. I hate to always remind you of this, but sometimes those of us who've been in the churches for so long and we're kind of the in crowd, may I remind you that we as an ethnic group and people have not always been the in crowd. Must I remind you how happy we should be that Acts chapter 10 is included in our scripture? Because we, basically we are those Gentiles that God came after. That God intervened in lives and invited into the family. And Paul, who is usually known as the missionary of Gentiles, is actually Peter that was sent to proclaim the gospel so that Gentiles could come in. And the Holy Spirit was the evidence was the stamp of God's approval that this group of individuals could come by faith and trust. That little word, verse 47, he says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? Notice, can anyone forbid? Can anyone hinder this from happening? I've told you that the basic theme of the book of Acts is The triumph of the gospel over every barrier. Triumph of the gospel over every barrier. And there are a lot of them. We've seen some of them even now. And we'll look when we come together in a couple weeks and look at Acts 11. We'll talk about how this is a barrier that they'll have to overcome as they communicate with other believers. But that little word, prevent or hinder, plays such an important role in this book. He says, can anyone hinder them from coming and being baptized and following the Lord? Can anyone really do that? Because you know what happens as God allows the triumph of his gospel to go forth? It goes forth in God's eyes unhindered. Last, last word in the whole book. Last word in the whole book. I know in about 2017, we'll be there at the end of that book, and you'll remember it probably. Some of you already graduate, but that's okay. There's one word at the end of the book. It's an adverb. The book kind of ends a little strange. Just one adverb there, which means something like unhindered. Unhindered. The gospel going forth in all these barriers, and yet in God's eyes, in a sense, is going forth unhindered. We would call them hindrances. We would call them barriers. God just says, my gospel, my, my message, it just keeps going. Unhindered. And here is that same word that's found. Can anybody stop them? Can anybody hinder them? Can anybody prevent them? 
because God has worked in their lives to make a difference. And friends, when God intervenes, no one can stop it. No one can hinder His powerful work. And again, I am so grateful for that. We have been grafted into His family. He has brought us to be a part of His kingdom. We should give thanks and we should extend that invitation to the nations that they might come and know the God that we serve and experience His salvation and His forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you tonight. Not a person, not one individual in this place deserved to be a part of your family. Lord, to be a part of your kingdom. But in your grace, you reached out to us. And you provided for us life. Thank you, Lord. God, give us the determination to go. And to give. And to reach our nation and the nation's. For your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we have this moment of reflection and invitation? Would you come as God calls?